uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And my heart just sank for just a moment, but I recovered. I just looked down at my uh, outline, which I just printed, and it said Daniel on it, and I thought, oh, no, did I have Lisa print the wrong one? <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh. We're studying Daniel in on Wednesday night, by the way. That's uh, probably why I was thinking Daniel, and put down Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, where... Uh, a little farther along, I think we're on chapter 4. We'll be going into chapter 4 on Daniel. Anyway, once you find uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, uh, stand. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power. Father, we thank you for letting us come together. We thank you for meeting with us. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, above all things, for your salvation. For Jesus Christ, who came and died for our sins, but who lives, that we too can live and have eternal life. We thank you, Lord, that we can worship you, that we can honor you by being attentive to your word and listening to what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, I ask for your help. I can do nothing on my own, nothing that would make any difference in eternity. But with you, all things are possible, Lord. We want to glorify your name today, in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Now this is the fourth lesson in our series on the book of Ephesians. And as I promised, uh, I'll begin by quoting uh, an accolade about the, the book of Ephesians by John Mackay, a Scotsman who later became president of Princeton Theological Seminary, who describes this book as the distilled essence of the Christian faith, truth that sings, doctrine set to music, and which Charles Spurgeon called a complete body of divinity. You know, in verses 3 through 14, as you may recall, these are just one, it's this one long sentence in which Paul lays out in a nutshell the whole scope of salvation from God's predetermined will before the beginning of creation through the inheritance we will receive when Jesus comes again with the fullness of his kingdom. It's little wonder that one of my favorite preachers and teachers, James Montgomery Boyce, says of these 12 verses, 
Paul seems to pile one great truth upon another in his desire to express adequate praise to God for salvation. But now Paul is moving on into application of these truths that he's expounded previously in the 12 verses. And like every good application, he starts with prayer. A prayer that he often prays for the church at Ephesus. He says, this is verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, notice the way that Paul words this, giving thanks for the faith that the Ephesians had in Jesus, but it is for their love for the saints that he is thankful Faith in the Lord is shown by our actions. You know, James said that faith without works is dead. But our love for the Lord is shown by our love for God's people. You know, there's no way around this. It's God's plan, I'm sure. He made it impossible for us to show our love for Him without loving His people. People have tried it. They still try it today to isolate themselves, becoming hermits or monks or whatever, and thinking they will devote themselves just to, to prayer and scripture. But to what end? I mean, what, what do you accomplish for the kingdom of God if you isolate yourself away from other people? God left us here for a, a reason. If he wanted us to be isolated from society, he would snatch us out of here as soon as we get saved. And if he did that, who would be around then to spread the gospel to other people? Because God has chosen the proclaiming of his word as the method by which people are saved. And so he leaves us here to proclaim his word, to live out his word, to bring other people to a saving knowledge of people. Yesterday, I attended a funeral of a a dear friend, Dr. David Dockery, who had been pastor of First Baptist Church for almost 30 years. And the epitaph that he left behind, which so many people said during this service, was that he truly loved people. His son and his daughter echo this in their eulogy of their father, that he taught them to love people. What better legacy can we leave behind than that we loved God's people. You know, the Apostle John says, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? The real evidence of God's work for us, or God's work in us, is not that we claim to love him, but that we love one another. You know, obviously, Paul spent a lot of time in prayer. In almost all of his letters to the churches, plus his letters to individuals, you know, he says, I am praying for you. And most assuredly, he was. He demonstrates that as uh, a pastor, and though Paul really didn't pastor these churches, but he gives the example, you know, that we are not just as pastors to teach people, but we are to pray for one another. 
And oddly, though, he says that they are all saints and faithful in Jesus and have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. He's still not completely satisfied with their spiritual progress. He prays, you know, that they will grow in the knowledge. He didn't just wasn't just happy to leave them the way that they were. He wants them to grow in their knowledge of God. And prayer, of course, is the foundational thing if we are going to grow in our knowledge of God. Another thing I picked up from David Dockery's funeral yesterday was one of his favorite sayings. He liked to say, Never talk to man about God until you've talked to God about man. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. First he tells them that he is praying for them. He tells them what he is praying for. And then he tells them why he is praying for it. In verse 17 he is praying that God will give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they may know God better. Then in verses 18 and 19 he's praying that God would open the eyes of their understanding so that they could know the hope to which he has called them and the riches of his inheritance and the power of his might. And he begins by asking God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know him better. And as James Montgomery Boyce says, this is really one great prayer for knowledge. Knowledge of God and the fuller knowledge of the elements of salvation consisting of our hope, our inheritance, the power available to us through Jesus Christ. The main idea behind Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and it would be the same for us today sitting here in Calvary Chapel, Princeton, is that we might know God and know Him better. You know, it's one thing to know God or about God. It's altogether different, though, to know who He is. We might know about Him. We may know what He's like. We may know what He's done, what He's promised us. You know, so many of us settle for second-hand knowledge. We settle for knowing about him when in reality we know him hardly at all. As one commentator put it, we're quite happy to go to heaven ignorantly. You know, I've known people, and you probably have too, that love to discuss theology and know a great deal about the Bible. They know a lot about the great doctrines of Christianity but have never confessed their sins before the Lord and accepted His salvation. They, they know a lot about God, but they know nothing really about Him. 
It's like a sports fan that can tell you more than you want to know about their favorite quarterback. How many passes he's thrown for touchdowns, how many passes he's thrown, how many interceptions he's thrown, you know, how many times he's been sacked, you know, what kind of car he drives, how many kids he has, you know, all this stuff. But they've never met him. They really don't know him as a person. You know, you could apply the same to maybe your favorite musician or your favorite actor or your favorite anybody. But Paul's prayer is that we shouldn't be like that with God, that we should know him on a personal level. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now as Paul told the Corinthians, there are many gods and many lords, that's capital G and, I mean small g and small l, but there's only one true and living God that we can know personally. And as believers, we are selling ourselves short if we don't take advantage of his offer to get to know him. Now, what does it mean to get to know him? How do I get to know him? And how can I know him better if I do know him? In his book, Knowing God, theologian and scholar J.I. Packer suggests three things. First, knowing God is a matter of dealing with him on a personal level. It's a matter of dealing with him as he reveals himself to us and as we see him working in our life. What Paul's praying for in verse 17 when he begins by asking for, for wisdom is to know when God is working in our lives and wisdom enough not to push him away. Dealing with God means involving Him in our everyday lives. We must not only commit ourselves to serving Him, but to ask Him to be involved. You know, if we never ask somebody for something, we don't know if they will do it or not. We wouldn't ask somebody to do something if we didn't think they could, but we may not be too sure if they will. And this is something I have struggled with myself. You know, when it comes to my relationship with the Lord, I know that He can, but will He? Will He hear me? Will He answer? You know, the more that, that I know Him, the better that I know Him, the more that I know that He will. Also, the more that I know that He will do it in His way and not in my way. And the more I am thankful that He will do it His way and not my way. Because my way tends to get things messed up pretty bad most of the time. So I like leaving things to his way. Secondly, knowing God is a matter of personal involvement in mind, will, and feeling. In mind because to know him gives us a desire to want to think on things that are pleasing to him. Or as Paul said to the Corinthians, to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. In our will, because if we know him, we want our will to be conformed to his will. Some young men came to Augustine one time, or St. Augustine, you may call him, same guy, and said, 
how do we know we're doing the will of God? To which he replied, Love the Lord with all your heart and then do what you want to. Because if we love him with all of our heart, then our will is going to be conformed to his and what we want to do will be what he wants us to. Thirdly, in feeling. Now, we often hear you can't go by feelings. Well, you can't in some things. and some things you can. But in feelings, because as, as believers... We should feel shame when we have disappointed our God. The better we know Him, the more we are going to feel shame when we disappoint Him. On the other hand, the better we know Him, the more we are going to be elated and thankful and full of praise when He is honored or vindicated. The Apostle John said it like this in John 1 John chapter 2 Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And thirdly, according to J.I. Packer, knowing God is a matter of grace. It is a relationship which the initiative throughout is from God and it must be because God is so completely above us and we have so completely fouled up any claim to his favor by our sin that any initiative has to be on his part but remember we can only know as much about God as he is willing to reveal about himself no person can ever discover God on that person's own terms whether it be through philosophy science religion or anything else that man can devise now we all have a general revelation you know we can see that in his creation Paul talks about this in the first chapter of Romans but to know him on a personal level first takes God involving himself with us directly God wishes to reveal himself to us. That's why he calls us to himself. And that is why he gave us his word. And that's why he gave us his Holy Spirit. The Packer concludes this saying by saying, What matters supremely is not that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. To which James Montgomery Boyce adds, This is the perspective of Paul in the opening chapter of Ephesians. Paul prays that we might know God precisely because it is God who first set his love upon us and elected to know us through his saving grace. In verse 18, Paul shifts his prayer from a knowledge of God on a personal level, knowledge of God himself, to a knowledge of those elements of salvation which he has outlined in the previous 12 verses that I was talking about that made that big one long sentence. And this is part of the prayer that he makes three requests. First of all, that we may know what is the hope of his calling. Secondly, 
that we may know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And thirdly, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now let's look at each of these requests one at a time. First of all, what is the hope of his calling? Here Paul links the word hope with the word calling. And this is important. In scripture, the word hope means to look forward to something that is in the end, the last of something, the completion of something that has already begun. And by linking hope with calling, Paul is saying that the calling of God, which he talked about in detail in verses 3 through 5, is not without context. As if God were calling us out of nothing or out of the fog or something. We are called to something and we are called for something. In verse 4, Paul had said that God chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. In verse 5, to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory. That calling is part of our hope along with our hope of being taken into heaven, seeing God, and being made in the likeness of Jesus. Now, today in everyday usage, the word hope usually indicates something that we wish will happen or think may happen, but the outcome is certain, uncertain. Like saying, I hope it rains tomorrow. Or I hope West Virginia beats Oklahoma next Saturday. That's more like wishful thinking, I think, or <laughs> pie in the sky or something. But, but in Scripture, the term hope is used of something that is certain because it is grounded on what God has done for us in the completed work of Jesus. That's why Peter calls it a living hope. Paul, writing to Titus, calls it a blessed hope. And the writer of Hebrews calls it a hope that is sure. What Paul is saying is that our hope tells us where we are going. In his commentary on the book of Ephesians, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of Philip Henry, who is the father of the great commentator most everybody has heard of, you know, a lot of these names that I mentioned in here, a lot of you may have never heard of before. Almost everybody's heard of Matthew Henry, one of the greatest Bible commentaries, commentators that there has ever been. His father, Philip Henry, and a young lady fell in love and wanted to be married. She was of a much higher social standing than Philip was. And in England in those days, that made a great deal of difference. This is back in the 1800s. And her parents were against the marriage because they saw the problems inherent in the difference in their social positions. So they asked the young lady, you know, this Philip Henry, where does he come from? To which the future Mrs. Henry replied, I don't know where he came from but I do know where he's going. We should all know where we're going with that blessed hope that God has given us. 
Number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now this verse allows for two interpretations. One is that he has prepared for his saints a glorious inheritance. And while that's true enough, it can also mean that we, God's people, are God's inheritance. You might think that's not much of an inheritance. You know, why would he want us? Because he loves us. To, to us, we are a, a great inheritance. Psalm 28.9 says, Save your people and bless your inheritance. Psalm 33. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. And while both of these interpretations are correct, I do think that the first one, that is that he is talking about the inheritance that he has prepared for us, uh, is the one that is applicable here because of the context. And you all know how big I am on context. But in the previous petition, Paul prayed that we might have hope. Here he's paying praying that we might have riches. Now, not worldly riches like the uh, name it and claim it televangelist types uh, would have us to believe, but riches that are eternal, riches that are spiritual, riches that moths cannot eat nor thieves can steal. It's really hard to imagine what, what God has prepared for us. But I know this much that it will make the most opulent of riches on this earth look paltry. I mean, after all, you know, when we get to heaven, gold will be like asphalt or concrete. It will be pavement. You know, Paul wrote to the Romans, For I consider that the sufferings, and Paul you know, had plenty of sufferings, he said, I consider not that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And then he wrote to the Corinthians, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit teaches us all things, yes, the deep things of God. You know, we take little enough advantage of God's blessings here on earth, but he has given us a taste of what is to come through his word and through his Holy Spirit. Number three, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his mighty power. You know, in his uh, commentary on Ephesians, John Stott points out that in the framework of these verses, the Christian is living somewhere between the call of God, which is past, and the riches of our inheritance, which in their fullness is in the future. You know, as we live in this present world, we are confronted daily with trials temptations. How can we live as God's children and be different from the world? How can we effectively witness for him 
when we are so weak and frail? Paul's answer to this problem is to know God in his power for us. Not to know of God's power, but to know God's power working in our lives. And this brings us back to where Paul began his prayer. That we can only achieve these things he is praying for the elements of our salvation by knowing God. And we can only know a person by spending time with them. We can only get to know God by spending time with Him. Close with one more story of Harry Ironside. Harry Ironside was uh, a theologian and pastor. He pastored the Moody Church in Chicago in the early part of the 20th century. And he tells the story of meeting a godly man who was dying of tuberculosis. His name was Andrew Fraser. He could speak just barely above a whisper, and his lungs were, were just about gone. Yet he said, Young man, I hear that you are trying to preach Christ, are you not? To which Ironside replied, Yes, sir, I am. Well, he said, sit down a while and, and let's talk about the Word of God. He opened the Bible until his strength was gone. He opened up one passage after another, teaching truths that the young Ironside at that time had never seen nor appreciated. Before long, tears were running down Ironside's cheeks, and he asked, Where did you get these things? Can you tell me where I can find a book that will open them up to me? Did you get them in a seminary or a college? And Fraser replied, My dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on a mud floor in a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. There, with my Bible open before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the Word to my heart. And he taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I could have ever learned in all the seminaries and colleges in the world. The key to knowing God is spending time with Him. Let's pray. Gracious and glorious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to serve a living God a God who is here, and a God that we can know. We are so thankful that you desire to reveal yourself to us through your word and through your spirit. And Lord, I pray that if there is someone here who does not know you on a personal basis, that you would call them before this day is over, that they may know you in the full and free pardon of sins. Lord, we just thank you and praise you for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.